Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today's guest makes books, gives talks, and takes care of us. At least according to his son, that's what he does. His talks include a TED Talk with over 2 million views, and he has three best-selling books. He's on a mission to make work not suck, and his newest book, Pick a Fight, does just that. Fired up to pick a fight today with my friend, David Burgess. David, pumped to jam with you today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I mean, in some ways, this whole thing is your fault, so I'm really excited to be here and talk to you about this. <laughs> okay, all right, well, let's start there, because you had this idea before. So this idea of picking a fight, I know it was slaying a dragon before, but let's go back to where this idea came from, because it's a unique concept for businesses. Yeah. I'm an organizational psychologist by training. I study teams. I study, to use the line from Adam Grant, I study how to make work not suck. I'm on a mission to make it suck just a little bit less if I can. And after I finished my last book, Friend of a Friend, I was looking at the power of teams, what unites teams, what bonds teams, all of that sort of stuff. It's a logical extension to a book about networks and relationships and all that sort of stuff. And it's also more my background. Like I probably never should have written a book on networking. It was just sort of came out of me, right? Because my prior books were all about management, teams, innovation, all that sort of stuff. So I was doing all of this research and yeah, you were one of the first people to get a preview of the idea, which at the time was this idea that one thing organizations don't take advantage of enough is the outside adversity or outside threats or something bigger than just sort of like the business model is what's motivated people for millennia. But we're really bad at communicating that outside threat. So we had this idea called, was it Slayer Dragon or Finder Dragon? I don't even remember. It was this complicated, it was honestly too complicated of a metaphor. But we had this whole idea and I came to, you and I go to the same conference every year. I came to it and sort of previewed it with a couple different people to see how it sort of resonated. And then I used that feedback, wrote a proposal, sent it to my publisher. And one really interesting thing happened. They said no. And then about three days later, another really interesting thing happened, which is I got an email from Jesse Cole that said, dude, I just talked to my whole team about your idea. We're super pumped, whatever. And so then I was like, all right, well, I think the guy running the big purpose-driven business that's changing the world. I think that guy knows a bit more than this guy sitting in a cubicle. So I'm going to chase down this path a little bit. So I started writing it. In the process of writing it, I figured out that A, the metaphor was too complicated because what it needed to be was concise. I'm asking people for a clear and concise answer to a question. I need the question to be specific to. And that is that teams are most bonded, most motivated, most driven. You have an easier time attracting talent, all of that sort of stuff. When you can give a clear and concise answer to the question, what are we fighting for? And a caveat here, the answer is never a competitor. It's never what are you fighting against? It's always what are you fighting for? What's that bigger thing that is driving your business? And it doesn't have to be your business model, but it does have to be a fight specifically seen that way. And that's what actually creates a huge bond, not only on your team together and can actually sort of tear down some of those silos and things that develop in larger organizations, but will also propel them forward. What are we fighting for? Hmm. And it's a different way of looking because it it's purpose. You know, everyone says you're going to have a purpose, but it's actually being in the way to clear and communicate. What is there like for you, a purpose and a fight? Yeah. So I deliberately didn't want to use the term purpose. One, because it's overused. It would probably be, I mean, to be honest with you, it'd probably be easier to tell people what the book's about if I use this. <laughs> and we'd use purpose in the subtitle. The problem with purpose is twofold. So number one, there's a misconception that purpose equals a mission statement. And organizations are awful at mission statements, right? We start trying to craft this thing We usually come up with a draft. We submit it to like a committee or a cross-section employees or the board of directors or whatever. And then everybody turns into like English professors or parliamentarians and starts debating like the intricacies of everything. We end up with this super boring thing. We end up with this thing that has to include customers, but also shareholders, but also employees, but also, and it just gets really, really mushy. 
So that's sort of problem number one to me with like purpose and mission statement. The second thing is often we think that purpose has to be your business model, right? It has to be specifically like what you do or what you sell or how you do it, et cetera. And that's not always the case, right? There are times where you are inheriting leadership of a really old organization and you're not going to be able to change that sort of stuff. I mean, there are great case studies of people doing that, but there's other times like one of my favorite companies ever or favorite leaders of a company ever is Paul O'Neill who led Alcoa around this real purpose-driven thing. Alcoa makes aluminum. You're never going to change the manufacturing industry in a short period of time, but he made their fight about safety. So I see it as something distinct and different from purpose that leverages those same sort of motivators. But oftentimes, like unless you've got the blessing of a board of directors or unless you can make some massive overhauls in a short period of time, mission and purpose are this other thing that you can set aside and just think about this answer to the question, what are we fighting for? The other reason I love fights is that you can do them as an individual manager. You don't have to be running the business. You have to be running the business to change the purpose. But you can say, hey, as a team inside this larger 10,000 person organization, what are we fighting for? And then you can build that around it. So I think it's just much more applicable to more leaders. And I think it's distinct from purpose because it doesn't really touch on the business model. Now, obviously, if you do, like you guys are a great example, if you do all of that together, it works more effectively, but you don't necessarily have to to get the benefits of motivation and teamwork and that sort of thing. But you know, I think, I think purpose is so big and daunting. Like just thinking about this, Dave, like yeah. when you caught me and when we first met at MMT a year and a half ago, we were so gung-ho for years on changing the game of baseball because the baseball was too long, too slow, and the whole industry felt there was a challenge. And as we've worked through that, the reason why we wanted to change the game of baseball was because of the fans, because of the people that go through the bad experience, because we're a fan too. And so we were talking about this all the time. Hey, this is what we're doing. And I even realized it wasn't as inspirational to the group. Not everyone wanted to change the game of baseball, but really they can see themselves as a fan. They can see themselves coming to the game and what we can do. And so our fight has changed, but it's been this driver of why are we doing what we're doing and making it simple. And I think that's what I'm intrigued and jamming with you about is like, simplifying this concept. And I don't know if you want to go into the three fights, but I want to go into how to simplify this to communicate it with someone that just showed up at your office. They just showed up. They've been working for a few months. Yeah. How does it matter? Yeah. So you actually hit on, I guess I should start talking about that. You actually hit on a third problem of purpose, right? Which is we think it has to be all encompassing. And then we end up, when you end up with a blank template, you end up like with a worse quality product because it can go anywhere. And so it does. And then it becomes this thing that nobody believes. So specifically when I say fight, there are three templates of fights There are probably more. This is not an exclusive list, but I can tell you from the research that I'm aware of that has been properly vetted and replicated and all that sort of stuff. There are three templates or three different types of fights that each motivate in a little bit different ways. And so rather than just say, oh, you need to find your purpose or say, well, you need to pick one. That's actually why the book's called Pick a Fight, right? You know, you got to pick a fight, but you have to choose one as well from these three templates. So we have the revolutionary fight, the underdog fight, and the ally fight. And when we started working together, like you said, we sort of thought, okay, maybe the revolutionary fight because you're trying to change the game of baseball. That's in essence the revolution, right? The revolutionary fight, you have it when you can say the entire industry says this is acceptable and we refuse to accept that, right? So that can be that the industry is totally okay with the game taking forever because it allows more advertising or whatever economic reason. They don't want to change how boring it is to watch the game. So can I stop for a second, can I stop for a second on the revolutionary? So yeah, like- yeah. Disney. Just, we just sent our whole team to Disney last week. We had experience. That's probably revolutionary because he was changing the way all the theme parks were done. For yeah. sure. At the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the time you had every amusement park in the US, right, was just about the rides, yes. right? And the entire industry says, as long as you get bigger, better, faster rides, you'll be fine. We refuse to accept that. We think it's about the sort of totality um, sort of experience, right? Disney's a really interesting model though, because the parks are not separate from anything else, right? 
I mean, maybe they're separate from like ESPN, which they also own, right? But other than that, everything is this sort of ecosystem. But yeah, you're exactly right. There's it's a clear way to differentiate. Done, changing the way things have been done. So for someone listening, are you really dramatically challenging the status quo of the way things are in the industry? That's revolutionary. So would Southwest Airlines, when they started and changed kind of way, are they a revolutionary? Or? You know, I think Southwest Airlines is an interesting case study because basically it was they weren't even sort of changing the industry i think i really think they were more of an underdog um i I think when you look at what the legacy carriers were doing their idea was you can have a perfectly fine business doing short direct flights in between places where these legacy character carriers are trying to take you around the world we see an opportunity that's sort of smaller right and what really motivated them not only was the fun loving idea and all of that sort of culture thing but also this idea that they were sort of taking on the big carriers but I mean, they're flying to the same cities, right? Yeah, so you're right. Um, so they were this little guy that tried to change the way and they became more of an underdog. That's good. Are there any right. more, say, I want to say what a revolutionary, any other yeah. like, revolutions that we can see to say, all right, that's a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of my favorite ones, and I, this is the one I talk about in the book, is the company Elevest. So Elevest is, it's a robo-advisor. It's like Wealthfront and Betterment and all that. Except Elevest was started by Sally Kralchak after 20 years working in Wall Street and deciding that the problem isn't that women don't fit in on Wall Street. The problem is Wall Street doesn't fit women, right? And she'll tell you the stats, 90% of women manage their money on their own at some point in their life. Um, women control, I think it's something like $8 trillion at this point in investable assets. Like there's a, lot of, there's a lot of money there, but Wealthfront, Betterment, all of these other robo-advisors assume you're a male, right? So when you're doing the algorithm that assumes your risk tolerance or how long you have, how many earning years you have, how long you're going to live, all of that sort of stuff. And so she said, you know, the entire industry thinks that's acceptable. We just use the male template and women will be okay. No, we need something that's actually tailored towards females. We need something that assumes they might have career gaps for caretaking. We need something that assumes they're going to make less money on the dollar. We need something that assumes a longer life expectancy. And so they created LFS. So the entire industry believes it's acceptable to just sort of have a unisex, one-size-fits-all model. We refuse to accept that. Um, our friends at Pila Case are my other favorite example of the revolution, right? They, they make cell phone cases, big deal, like sort of a million other people, right? Al- Alibaba has like a hundred different factories that can make you a cell phone case. Their big differentiator is they say all of those are made with petrochemicals. All of those are made with um, plastics that will sit in a landfill for 10,000 years. We found a way to make a moldable plastic out of corn husk and soy husk and other organic materials that will biodegrade in 10 years. The whole accessory, and, and how, you, how you know they're a revolution to me is when they started thinking about their business model, they, they started with a cell phone case because that's something that everybody gets a new cell phone every year or two years. And so there's this clear waste thing there. And it was easy to sort of inject and mold. But then they didn't go, great, what other accessories and mobile phones or technology or whatever should we make? They actually said, great, what's the next thing made out of plastic that we can replace that gets reused or lost or whatever all the time. And so they went to sunglasses. You and I both have a pair. They're really good sunglasses. I think next they're looking at flip-flops. Like they're starting with what are the most consumed things that are made out of stuff that does not biodegrade. Let's make a biodegradable. Let's make a waste-free version of that, whatever industry we're in, right? Logically, business model, competitive strategy, Michael Porter, all of the stuff that I used to teach in business school would say, go to your adjacent markets, right? Expand inside the mobile phone industry, et cetera. They said, no, 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 we're not doing that. The entire, everybody that uses plastics needs to know that you don't have to use uh, uh, stuff that isn't actually waste-free anymore. That's our revolution. That's what we're trying to change. So I love it. So revolutionary, challenge the norms of the industry. 
Yeah, whenever the whenever the industry says this is acceptable, and you say we refuse to accept that, uh, you've you've got the seeds of a revolution. So when I'm working with an organization, for example, that's the big thing that I'm asking: what are things that you guys would never do? What are industries you'd never go into, or what are sales methods you would never do, and and why? Right. And if you can sense that there is a big, you know, the industry's over here, and we really disagree with why they're doing that, then you've got the the seeds of a revolutionary fight in you. I love it. Now we'll go into underdog and ally. Just just kind of listening here. I feel when we look at our business, we see elements of each. Like for instance, we refuse to accept that you have to have advertising and sponsorship and ads all over our stadium. So yeah. go, we eliminated all the ads. We refuse to accept that because that's not what's best for fans. That's a revolutionary tactic, technique, potentially. Yeah, and I think you, know, you said it though, it goes back to that it's not what's best for fans, right? I mean, unless knowing the local State Farm agent is what's best for fans, but I doubt it is, right? It sort of goes back to, to that level. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, This is actually one of the biggest challenges. You were the first to experience this is that a majority of leaders like to think they're a revolution, but it's not actually about you. It's about your people, right? So what you did, we talked and we started working. We thought we had a revolution. And then you took it to your people and you found out, you know what, that doesn't actually resonate with them as much as I think it would. And that's what matters. When you get to the point, now, I mean, you you could still sort of do it by force of charisma when you're a smaller organization, right? But as soon as you get to the point where no one, where the senior leader of the organization, not everyone is a direct report to them, then, you know, that's when you have to worry about company culture and all that sort of stuff. And that's when you have to say, it's not about what I want the fight to be anymore. I, I have 50 people that I employ. It's about what would resonate with the most of them because that's going to be more effective than what I want. And so that's what we found with you, right? That mm, I think it's a revolution. A lot of people that my dentist who I talked to about this example thinks he's a revolution, right? Not really sure that's what resonates most with your employees. I know it's what you want to think you are, but it's about what resonates most with your team. All right, love it. Let's keep going through these and let's dive into this fun. So we got revolutionary, now underdog. Yeah, so the underdog, you've got the seeds of an underdog whenever you can say that the industry is discrediting us or doesn't believe in us. That's not always that we're too small. It can be that we do things a little bit differently and so they think that we're not going to last. It can be that we're an untested business model, et cetera. But the idea is that what's the fire, the motivational fire is just to prove the critics wrong, to prove the naysayers wrong, et cetera. And I'm personally a big fan of the underdog fight. I mean, I'm, I was born in Philadelphia, right? Our greatest sports hero is a fictional character who lost a boxing match, right? That, we have statues of that person instead of real sports heroes. So you know we love the underdogs, right? Yeah. Rocky is actually a great example. You remember halfway through the original movie, he says, I don't actually want to win. I just want to go the distance because then I'll know I'm not a bum. Right? So it's about basically everybody's calling him a bum. Everybody's saying he doesn't deserve to be there. It's about proving that we deserve to be there. Right? You're an underdog fight. That's your fight, right? That tends to be what motivates me. I mean, I live in a place where you're not supposed to live when you are a business author, a speaker, et cetera. You're supposed to live in New York or LA or San Francisco, or you're supposed to teach in an Ivy League business school. I don't do any of that. Right? I'm happy in my low cost of living middle of America big enough to have everything I want, but not so big that it's taking my entire salary just to keep a one-bedroom apartment here, right? But that comes with some trade-offs, right? It's harder to kind of network into that industry, et cetera. So I get pretty motivated by the underdog fight. I, so there's other friends of ours that do as well. I've never actually told him this, so I hope he's not listening to the podcast, but like our mutual friend, Jordan Harbinger and the Jordan Harbinger show, that dude's a huge underdog. He's hugely motivated on how, look at what all these other shows that have the same number of listeners than me are doing. They have like 20 staff members and their expenses are so high. And like, and then we're just this show and it's three of us, but we're killing it, right? Like they love that idea that the industry thinks, oh, we're not really all that legitimate because we don't have like a staff of 40 people, but we're doing the same number of downloads as them. 
right? So that's when I think you've got the seedbeds of it. And there are times where that underdog fight sort of finds you. Like the, one of the examples I love to give is that everybody knows the story of how Blockbuster had the opportunity to purchase Netflix. What nobody really knows about that story is that Netflix was going out of business when it happened, right? So it's not just here's a successful business model and we should buy. It's not like Instagram where Facebook bought Instagram for a billion before it turned into a $20 billion organization. It was y'all are running out of business because you're wrong because brick and mortar is the future, which is what Blockbuster believed. So basically Netflix came to Blockbuster and said, we think we should talk about, you should talk about acquiring us. And they were like, well, look at your numbers, look at your whatever, like clearly even your idea doesn't work. So then they have a very long flight home after getting rejected. And that's when you sort of take on this idea, you know what, that's what we need to motivate our people, right? That what Reed Hastings and the rest of the senior leaders got from that rejection was an underdog story that fueled them to stay in business and keep working harder. And then they sort of do it multiple times, right? Because then they pivoted to streaming. And now instead of going after Blockbuster, they're going after cable companies. Now they're making movies. So now they're going after the establishment of Hollywood. Like every time they pivot their business model, they're still doing it in this underdog thing where they are criticizing us. They're thinking we don't deserve to be here and we're going to prove them wrong by winning Academy Awards or we're going to prove them wrong by having more subscribers than Cox or Comcast or whatever, right? But I think it started with that Blockbuster rejection, which was actually a perfectly logical rejection if you're Blockbuster. But what they got out of it was, yeah, the industry doesn't appreciate us and we're going to prove them wrong. And he was interviewed about a year ago and he said, we're still a huge underdog. If you look at the people yeah. that are right now, they're looking all, we're only this percentage, we're this tiny little percentage. And so he's built that to us, he seems big. So that's a great example of an underdog. I want to move to Ally. Yeah. So the Ally fight is, it's not about our fight at all, actually. It's about our people's fight, our customers fight, our employees fight. It's about some other fight that we help. And that's where I think that's what we found resonated with you the most with your people is that idea that we're fighting for the fans. It's about the fans. It's about the fact that like, I'm a dad of two. You're a dad of, I don't even know how many anymore. Jeez, Only one that I know of. All right. Okay, good. Uh, (laughs) I was like, I remember baby pictures and I haven't seen any in a while. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Good. Awesome. So, you know, like it's incredibly obnoxious to have like family entertainment. Just to go to the movies is like 50 bucks, right? And then you go out to an amusement park, you go to whatever, like this is just awful, right? And then there's that idea, again, baseball is a pastime. We want our kids to love it. We want, but then we've got these large multi-billion dollar organizations trying to bleed each dad for eight bucks for a refill of soda, right? It's just ridiculous. So that's that idea of, okay, what they're fighting for is this. They're fighting for something that brings their family together. They themselves are fighting for certain things. And then we help them by bringing them that experience that says, no, it's about you. It's about et cetera, right? Other examples that I love of the ally fight in the book, I talk about Kaiser Permanente, which is really, they're a health system. And it's really easy to say, oh, great, you're an ally fight because you're a health system. The challenge with a lot of organizations, if you do the ally fight, is that as a leader, it's now incumbent upon you to make sure that every person in the organization sees the fight. And we usually don't do that. So in Kaiser Permanente's case, yeah, doctors and nurses know that they're helping patients who are fighting with diseases, fighting cancer, fighting obesity, fighting whatever, right? But receptionists don't know that. Call center workers don't know that. Medical assistants, the people that basically take you from the waiting room and tell you to take off your clothes and sit on that cold table, like they don't know that. They don't see that. And so what Kaiser Permanente did is they started this program called I Saved a Life, which is whenever you notice something in a patient file that that flags your attention, usually it's when you notice that they haven't had a preventative screening. Hey, you're over 40 and you haven't had a colonoscopy yet or over 45 or whatever the number is, right? Or your female patient, I noticed you haven't had a mammogram in 10 years and we recommend that. Whenever you notice that, you flag it and you get them scheduled for that and then they find something. They find cancer or they find that, yeah, you're actually, your blood sugars are really high because you haven't had an A1C in six years. 
that's considered a life saved. And the person who is awarded is the person that noticed. So even if you work in a call center and a patient calls because they need to talk to an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and you say, you know what, I noticed you haven't had an A1C exam in five years and your last one was a little high. Maybe we should get that scheduled too. Would you like me to schedule that? That's considered a life saved and it's celebrated just as much as if you're the doctor that did the surgery that cured, the, that took out the cancer or whatever, right? So Kaiser really said it's incumbent upon us to make sure that everybody sees the fight that we're in or the fight that our customers are in, et cetera. And you can also be that idea that we're fighting internally. Like I thought I had a can of it with me because I was fixing something the other day. WD-40 is one of my favorite companies in the universe, right? And Gary Ridge has really made a great example of the fact that like, yeah, we sell oil. Like we basically sell a lubricant. It's not all that exciting. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for each other. We're fighting to create this culture where people can actually thrive and be supportive. We're fighting to resist the urge to be that normal up or out killer be killed corporate structure, right? And so if you ask Gary Ridge, what are you fighting for? I'll tell you, I'm fighting for my tribe. They use the term tribe, right? Um, so I love that idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be that our customer is the person that we're fighting for, but in some capacity, it's not about what we actually do. It's some other shit stakeholder that is important that is fighting for something. And by existing and doing our business, we are helping them win that fight. Mm, I love this. And David, I think we just went on a jam for those three, like, for the tangible, I think the practice is a big, big question in a lot of businesses because we're like, all right, what are you fighting for? It's so inspirational, but how do you get it in? And for us, we've started talking even more about it. What do we stand for? We stand for the fans. And so what does that mean? We actually started practicing. Whenever it's a, anybody on our, any customer, any fan walks in, we stand. Like the president's mm. walking in. So literally, when they walk in our office, they walk in, we stand. And our, 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 our few staff's like, it's a little uncomfortable for, I go, yeah, it will be at first. But it's, it's a ritual, a symbolism. What do we stand yeah. Who are we here? Who's writing our checks? What are we doing? And that's why, you know, we go undercover fan. We try to put ourselves in their shoes. We have shoes now that are our fan shoes that we will say, hey, put these on and put yourself in the fan shoes. And yeah. We're fighting for that. We're fighting for the fans that have been nickel and dime, that have been boring experiences. They aren't able to get together with their families and friends and bring them together. Like, I'm still working on clearly clarifying it, but yeah. the value to businesses, how do you clearly state it? So, yeah. The steps. Hey, Everyone listening, and by the way, if everyone's listening doesn't realize, hey, we need to know what our fight is, we're missing the boat. But what is that next step? Hey, we got to find yeah. it. How do you go about doing it? So yeah, so I mean, first you have to find it, right? And we talked about a couple of questions around the revolutionary fight, but we didn't do that. I was like, give you the quick and dirty for finding it. Because remember, it's not about what you think you're in. It's about your people. The quick and dirty is to ask two questions of as many of your people as you can. The two questions are, what do we do here? And how does what you do help us do that, right? And if the answer is we sell lubricant, you don't have a fit for the WD-40 tribe, right? which is good. And it may not be their fault. It might be your fault for not communicating that properly. Hey, what do we do here? Well, we're a minor, 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 minor league baseball team. We didn't really do a good job reminding you what we are, right? But if you don't have a lot of clarity around what it is, you'll hear that people give a lot of different answers. And that's okay. In that diversity of the answers, you'll probably be able to sort them into like people talking about the industry and how we're different from them. That's a hint that it might be revolution. People talking about how we're growing or how we're taking on, that might be a hint of the underdog, right? And if they talk about customers, which is really what a lot of your people do, that's a hint that it's the ally, right? So that's how you sort of find it. Once you do, the next step is embedding it in culture, right? And culture is really, there's a bunch of different models that I'm going to betray all of them in terms of organizational behavior, literature, and studies that people don't read, et cetera. For the average person, when you're thinking about culture, you're thinking about stories and artifacts, right? Stories and artifacts. Artifacts are great examples like the shoes, right? Um, or in the case of WD-40, you walk in their headquarters as a big teepee, which is kind of culturally insensitive, but you get the idea, 
right? What artifacts are you pointing to that are um, capturing that, that example? And it could be rituals are sort of a form of, of artifacts in that. Then there's stories, right? What stories are you telling? If, you're the, if you are the ally fight like y'all are, then you need to think about what stories from the fans we need to capture. The story of um, the father, I think it was, a, it was a father, right, who lost his wife and the kids. I've heard that. I've heard you tell that story four or five times. I get chills like each time telling those stories again and again. If it's the revolutionary fight, then you need to tell stories about how the industry is wrong, right? How they're actually taking advantage. You need to tell stories that make your people angry, right? If it's the underdog fight, you need to be really careful about what stories they're heeding. I had somebody send me this after they read Pick a Fight. I wish I would have found it in the research. But University of Alabama, which I'm an OU fan, so I'm not really a big fan of me even talking about this team. But Alabama football, right? Nick Saban was actually hugely careful to make sure that his players never caught the hype. Most of the stories from papers and things like that that he would share with his players and still probably still does were about basically people in ESPN saying Alabama's overrated this year. They're not going to go as far this year or whatever. He, I mean, he literally was like, no, 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 I don't want you to hear the stories complimenting you. I want you to hear those. And this is the University of Alabama. Nobody like you shouldn't be the underdog. You should not. But the stories that you tell are, are really powerful. The way to level up those stories too is to find a way to make it not you telling them. So there is a little bit of research around whether or not people better perceive those stories from a senior leader versus from a peer or from the actual person or or what have you. So to the extent that you can make sure you're not just telling the story, you're bringing the story to life and you're letting them hear it or letting it get circulated around the organization, those are more powerful. But stories and artifacts, that's the two big things. Once you've found the fight, you have to say, okay, what stories are going to help us tell that, that we're in that fight? And then what artifacts are people going to see or interact with on a regular basis that will remind them of that fight? And so we went through this and you were kind of shocked. I actually like videoed everyone on our team. So I literally <laughs> talked about this. I said, hey, Katie, jump over here. We're filming you. I just got to ask a question. And I said, what do we do here? What service do we provide? And, so, and I interviewed everyone. And it all took me, I mean, again, we only had 12 people on our team. It took me about 30 minutes. And yeah. what was the most telling for me was what they didn't say. Was there complete mm-hmm. clarity? Did everyone say the exact same thing? No, but they did not say anything about baseball. They didn't say anything about the sport. They said, hey, we entertain our fans. We deliver fun yep. We do fans first. And Fantastic so- experience, right? I think that was the term you guys yes. were throwing around. Yes. Yeah. yes, 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 yes. Katie said we provide a fantastic experience, which again, using the fan word, fans came up in every one. So you're right. Yep. Yeah, we found. And now since that talk, the artifacts, the other thing I thought about is we're replacing box seats next year. I want to take one of those blocks, put it on wheels and have it in every meeting to represent that mm. thing in every meeting. And I think Howard Schultz did it in Starbucks, but that's an artifact from our stadium that fans have sat in every year, every game. And that's going to be every meeting plus these shoes. And so that's the next step with the stories. And I just see it how it's becoming inspirational. But I think the key is how do you find out what you've said before? What are the sacred values of yeah. our, your, your team? So is that same thing, how you found those sacred values, what people are saying? Yeah. I mean, so again, it's a matter of what will resonate with them, right? So when we're asking, what do we do here and how does what you do help us do that? What you're looking for hints are what will resonate the most. You can still declare what those sacred values are. So for you, right, it's writing this manifesto, right? Which I probably shouldn't have said on air because now people are going to be like, Jesse, send me an email. And and I just ruined that because it's not done yet. But you get to sort of pick what they are. The reason sacred values has to do really with the reason that I use the language of a fight, right? I mean, first of all, again, I got to give the caveat. It's not that we're fighting the, our competitors, right? It's funny to watch for as much as Apple and Microsoft, when they're selling, try and differentiate themselves in the consumer's mind. I've spoken at Microsoft and half the audience was typing on Apple computers, right? I've been to Apple. I've talked with people at Apple. They don't actually care, right? It's a great marketing gimmick, Coke versus Pepsi, but not a lot of people at Coke actually care. 
So there's that idea that it's never your competitors. But the reason fights bond is because they reinforce those sacred values. If we can say, in the case of Alcoa, right, that we're trying to be the safest manufacturing plant, we're trying to be zero accident company, then that reinforces the sacred value. That creates a sacred value out of safety, reinforces that idea that we're all in this together, that community feel, et cetera, which is the first thing that sort of fights do is that sacred values piece. And then they also provide a group identity. If it is us versus this bigger thing, we then immediately have a group, right? And sometimes, and this is where we were with Slay Your Dragon when I was still kicking the idea around is if you can point to that outside adversity and you can say, if we don't take this on, there are stakes to losing this battle. If we don't take this on, something bad is going to happen either to us, to our fans, to whatever it is. So that's the sacred values and group identity piece. You get to pick in terms of the word, what that sacred value is, but your hint, the reason you're asking this question from a lot of people, and there's larger exercises that we can do if you've got a bigger team, but like if you're a small business, that's the quick and dirty way to do it. What do we do here? How does what you do help that? And then you're just looking in those answers. In your case, that word fan came up so many times. Normally, it doesn't come up that often, right? Came up so many times we were like, let's not even develop a new sacred value. Let's just use that one because that's the one everybody's already using. Let's talk about fan and how many ways can we say that it's about the fans. I love, by the way, the standing for the fans thing because it's so corny. It would just work, right? Picture coming in to pick up my tickets and everyone stands up. I'm like, why are you doing that? Like, we stand for our fans. Like, (laughs) super corny. I will never forget it. Well, again, I thought of it in the sense like when the president walks in a room, you stand. And because of the utmost respect. And think about this, David. When we were in Cabo, what did all the people do on grounds when we walked by? They stopped, they stood, and they saluted us. Yeah. Buenos noches. Yeah. The utmost amount of respect. And so, uh, yeah, it's, again, just part of the theme. But what I think you mentioned this, find your adversity too. That's interesting because I think it's a challenge to find the adversity. How does that go into finding the fire? Yeah. I mean, it's about stakes, right? So this is why, again, I like the term fight more than the term purpose, right? Because I mean, Facebook believes its purpose is to sort of connect the world, whatever. If you've been watching Facebook and people's reactions to Facebook over the last four years or so, you can very clearly be still have that purpose and have people be like, "Mm, I'm really not comfortable with the ways in which you want to connect the world, right? So the the beauty of a fight is that it, it outlines the stakes. If we don't accomplish this purpose, this is the future that we're going to be looking at, right? So and the that, adversity, or is the adversity? yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the fight hints at that adversity idea, right? Oh, the Alcoa, no, no right. separate like adversity. So basically, adversity is whether the revolution, the fight, or the underdog. It's right, right, right. But it adds that element of stakes that a lot of companies don't have, right? If your mission is shareholder value, or your mission, like you know what, this is a great example. Give me a second to nerd out on this. That's yeah, all right. Yeah. One of my favorite companies in the world for a couple different reasons is the company Hershey, right? Not only because I grew up in, outside of Philadelphia and we would go to Hershey Park and all that sort of stuff, but they're a great example in this case. And I didn't write about them mostly because I didn't want to badmouth them. But like, I have one share of Hershey stock on my hanging over here. You can't see it because I want to be reminded of this. Hershey has the worst mission statement I've ever heard. Their mission statement, undisputed marketplace leadership. That's it, right? There's no stakes there. There's, there's no sense. However, they have a larger fight. They leverage the ally fight. Not a lot of people know this. Milton Hershey and his wife, when they were married, building out the Hershey empire, et cetera, they couldn't have children of their own. So they started to adopt. His wife had, I forget the exact disease, but it left her barren, but it also claimed her life early. She died a lot earlier than Milton Hershey did. When that happened, Milton basically, in the most amazing act of sort of grief, decided in her honor, I'm going to set up a school for orphans. So rather, we adopted these orphans, but I'm going to set up more. So we set up the Milton Hershey School. It still exists to this day. It graduates about 1,000 to 1,100 kids, K through 12. If you're a societal or biological orphan, you can get invited to get... I mean, I've been to this campus. It is like Ivy League level school, right? Whatever the fanciest private school in Savannah is, that, right? Except it's totally free to these kids, including living in a house with house parents. The house are capped at a certain number, so you still feel like you have a family. 
all of that happens, right? Now, why does this still exist, even though it's been decades since Milton Hershey died? It's because when Milton died, he set up a trust for the school and gifted his shares of the company to the trust. So this isn't corporate social responsibility. It's not like they take a 3% of their profit and they give it to the school. The school owns Hershey Foods. The school owns Hershey Park. They are still the majority shareholder in the whole thing. So they can get away with a crappy mission statement because everyone who works in Hershey, Pennsylvania sees the school across the road from their offices and knows what they're fighting for. They're fighting for those kids by doing their business, right? So I love that. And they don't use the term fight, but they know stakes. They know that if we don't manage this right, that thing over there is going to suffer. There's a weight there that undisputed marketplace leadership doesn't do, right? So no, the adversity is not different from the fight, but it, it is why the fight works, is that there is a feeling that if we don't do this, the future is not as bright, is less dim, or sometimes even non-existent for certain people, right? That's what we're fighting for. Yeah. So you need to first know what it is. And you say no one company, they want to start a, it's no one wants to work for a company. They want to start a crusade, right? Everyone. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People, people don't work for a company. They want to start a crusade. It's not about the firm. It's about the fight. They don't care about competitors, right? They care about this larger crusade, this larger revolution, this, that, this reformation, whatever term you want to use. I have gotten some negative emails about the term, <laughs> about the term fight. Ironically, they've been from people that were like defense contractors, which I think is really funny. <laughs> well, hey, it's okay, but because I mean, that's what it is. You're fighting something. And if it's worth fighting for, I think is the terminology they use. And I think what's really right. first, know what you're fighting for. Next, try, all right, do you have the artifacts? Do you have the stories? And then you can start telling them and then people can feel them. You got to feel them. You're right. Yeah. Like, those stories. I mean, I, that block, well, one, obviously about the, the family that died and the mother that died, but also just a simple, a guy in a mustache coming up to me after a game, season ticket holder, giving me a huge hug and saying, thank you. He said, my mother and I haven't gone many years, but she came up the game, watched the players dance, had the time of her life, and now we sit together at every game. And that story is now be told not just by me, it's told by other people on our staff. Right. This is, hey, we're doing this to bring people together in a fun way. So, so important. I want to go into the ally fight that you mentioned about Adam Grant, the study with the three groups of recipients. Really important piece to find out how you get this. The reason I narrowed it down to these three fights is that each of them actually used, beyond just adversity, use a little bit different motivational lever, right? There is research that suggests that underdogs win more often than they should, surely because of motivation to prove people wrong, for example. The ally fight, in contrast, leverages what's now known as pro-social motivation. So this is different than like extrinsic motivation or intrinsic motivation. There is a, a real human desire to help others that is a form of, of motivation that we're they're researching. So Adam Grant of Give and Take, I mean, he even talks about this a bit in Give and Take, but it's interesting because most people's takeaway from that book is like, I should be a nicer person to everyone. And yeah, that's true. But like, we should also talk about how we leverage pro-social motivation to give people a sense of purpose so that work sucks a little bit less, right? So one of his first studies, he was actually still a PhD student when he did this study. He was a PhD student at the University of Michigan. And if you, did you go to state school? Uh, no. Went to Did you go to a big school? You went, okay. So I went to a small school for undergrad and then I went to the University of Oklahoma for graduate school, which is a, you know, tens of thousands of personal organization. Most of the state schools and larger schools have this really well-developed donation system, right? I mean, it's a call center where literally student workers who are getting a scholarship uh, or getting paid money to do this are smiling and dialing old alumni asking for numbers. It's actually the first call I ever got from the University of Oklahoma after I graduated was asking for money. Right, um, but they so they do this. They do it at the University of Michigan, and it feels like any other call center you would imagine, right? Which is what Adam Grant noticed. In fact, there's my favorite thing. He points out that one of the kids making the calls had a sign on his desk that said, "Doing a good job here is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. You get a warm feeling, but nobody notices," right? Which is a really big deal. So he starts thinking, "What are ways that we could encourage these people? We you know we can't for a lot of federal reasons. We can't raise their pay. We can't do this and that." 
it comes up with this pro-social motivation. I didn't even use the term at the time because he hadn't discovered pro-social motivation, but he says, what if we could just share with them how they're making a difference on a regular basis? So he took all the call center people, randomized them into three different groups. One group basically got an extra break one day, right? They just, hey, you have an extra 10 minutes, do whatever you want. One group during that break came to the break room and read letters that had been written by students who received scholarships as a result of the fundraising efforts. And then one group showed up in the break room and there was a student there, a real physical student telling them his story and how he never would have been able to afford to go to the University of Michigan if it weren't for their scholarship efforts, et cetera. Grant then tracked them for a number of weeks afterwards and found that the people in the group that actually got to interact with the person they're fighting for, right? The, the actual student, they made more calls. They had a longer time on the calls. They had more money raised per call, every single metric, right? And it wasn't that, I mean, nowhere in this 10 minutes did we give people like a, a refresher on sales techniques, right? Nothing changed other than their will to do the job because now they knew this is the person we're fighting for. This is the stakes. If I don't do a good job here, kids like that can't come to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there've been a lot of studies since then in, in what's known as this idea now of pro-social motivation. How do we actually motivate our employees by showing them this is the difference that you make. It can be a difference that you make like Gary Ridge and WD-40. It's a difference that you make laterally to your peers. It can be a difference that you make for your customers, but it all comes down to that. And that's why I say it's about stories and artifacts when we're thinking about ways to do it. Because it's not enough to just say, you can't just put it in your 10K, this is why we exist. Your employees aren't gonna read it, right? Um, what did you call you it? Have, what? what? Did you call studies of, there's a lot of studies of pros. Pro-social pro motivation. Pro-social yeah. motivation. Motivation to help others, right? Um, before that, basically the entire world was focused on intrinsic or extrinsic motivators. Extrinsic motivators, rewards or punishments, intrinsic love of doing the job, right? Not why you're doing the job, but just love of doing the job. This was sort of this now third element of motivation that, that Grant helped discover. And I the, want to jump in this because I love this. Yeah. A great action step for everybody is how can you bring in someone that you serve to tell the story of how you serve them, really transform them, help them? How can you bring them in? How can you find that? Because we had a, a, a gentleman named Mr. Willie, 80 years old, started coming to this ballpark. He wasn't allowed to sit in the regular seats. African-American gentleman. When the stadium first started, he was, in, he was a young kid. He couldn't sit in where everyone else sat. So finally, many years ago, he got a seat behind the grandstand and we have a seat for him, Mr. Willie. And he comes to every game. He, he wasn't sure he was going to make the opening night last year. We did a video on him and he got so emotional, standing ovation to come into this ballpark for 70 plus. Yeah. And what happened is we, we, we took him into our stadium and uh, this, this past about a few months ago and we made a, a nice uh, plaque, almost like a whole artistic mural plaque with him, picture of him and his quote. And we're putting it up at the ballpark and we showed it for the whole staff and the whole staff's there seeing as he's getting emotional, knowing how much this place means to him. Yeah. Jester, that motivation, I can't be much anything else more powerful. How do we bring that to our people? Yeah. So there's two things in there, right? So there's not just how do we find them? Like you did a great job of finding that story, but the mural is an example of the reminder, right? So you did both. You did the stories and the artifacts. The stories are there, but there will be, if all you guys ever did was Jesse Cole telling the story about Mr. Willie or telling the story about the family or telling the story about the mustache guy, right? Eventually the story loses its luster because you, I mean, it's sort of like, they're like, stories like this are like dad jokes, right? The more you hear them, the less funny that they are. So we eventually roll our eyes when we hear it from the leader, right? So it's about how do you tell the story? And then artifacts are those little reminders of the story, right? So the mural is a great example of that. And when you do both of those things, you start to get people telling the stories for you, 
right? To each other or just reminding each other of the stories or, or what's really great is if this is, would be the next step, especially if you're a larger organization is after stories and artifacts, how do we bring it into the onboarding process where other employees who are responsible for mentoring that person or whatever are the ones telling people those stories? Because especially as an organization grows, senior leadership has less and less of an ability to directly affect culture. You can't just do it by sheer will and charisma. You've got to think about what systems do we have in place where those stories are, are regularly shared and the artifacts are, are regularly seen. I think we try and do this a lot of times with mission statements, right? But because there's no story attached to undisputed marketplace leadership, you can hang that plaque as many times as you want. You can hang it in every elevator, in every hallway, and people will walk right by it and, and not see it, right? But when you have them both together, you've got a lot of power. I love it. All right. So before we get to some rapid fire games, because we're going to get that, don't you okay. get away from those, David. All right. So just number one, find out what you're fighting for. That start, start, starting point, ask your people, what do we do? What was the other question with that? What do we do here? And how does what you do help us do that? Right. Which is a big indicator. So you might know, for example, right from their answers, yes, this is clearly our fight, but you might realize that half of those people don't see it. And so your bigger challenge isn't finding your fight. Your bigger challenge is making sure everybody knows it. Right. So that's why you need both questions then finding what your fight is and being able to clearly articulate it within that realm of revolutionary underdog and allies. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Those are my templates for you, right? And you might think, oh, we're a little bit different. Let's go away from these. The reason I know those works is there are decades of motivational research that support those three. There are probably other ones out there, but there aren't decades of research supporting them. And then once you get that, which you did, and I don't know, we talked about manifesto, you referenced it, but you actually put one in here for you. Yeah. Yep. You started saying your belief statements. You finished your whole book with about nine I believes. That's mm -hmm. almost a manifesto. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I stole that idea uh, a little bit. From, I mean, I, uh, it's an old joke in organizational psychology about making work not suck. Um, Grant, I think, even talks about it at the beginning of his podcast now. So everybody thinks I stole it. But it's an older joke than that. But there's also a guy named Bob Sutton who publishes this thing. I think it's right now up to 14. Basically, 14 things I believe. They're all about work and human behavior because he's a psychologist. And every once in a while, he updates. It's his own sort of personal manifesto. I don't know that I would call it my own personal manifesto for every aspect of my life, but every aspect of my work needs to tie back to one of those things, mm -hmm. right? That the idea at work, I mean, the biggest one in there actually is that work-life balance is a myth because if you don't do work that engages you, inspires you, uplifts you, you're going to bring that crap home with you. And even if you only work 35 hours a week or whatever, your home life will be worse off because the 35 hours you're putting in are draining you. And it doesn't magically flip when you pull in the driveway, right? You drag it back home with you as well. So that's sort of the big one. That's why we're on a mission to sort of make sure everybody knows this answer to the question, what are we fighting for? Because work affects our lives in ways that we're only now beginning to understand. And so that's why this matters so much. I love it. So then the founder works on the belief statements, the manifesto, and then you develop stories and artifacts for yeah. the cycle that yeah. goes round and round. Go yep. On. Beautiful. All right. Love it. Game time. All right. Okay. It is now truth and dare. Which one okay. first? Truth. Oh, truth. All right, we'll go serious here. All right, so what's one thing that's held you back in your career? Obscurity. I mean, we talked about it a bit, right? Is I get motivated by the underdog fight, but there is a very real, and there are non-work-related reasons I chose to live where I live and do what I do and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it definitely makes it harder. It's a whole lot easier when you live in New York to interact with the people in publishing or speaking industries, et cetera. Like it's just easier or other cities. So I always say that my biggest hindrance in the world is obscurity, right? How do I get more people who don't know I exist to know that I exist? Because then I can get them this message and then we can go from there. Mm. How do you stand out when you have the challenge of obscurity? All right, that's a good, that's a good thing to hold you back. That's a whole other conversation. But now- Yeah, I know, right? And when I solve it, I'll be back. <laughs> Are you ready for your dare? 
Yeah, go forward. All right, we do this at the games. It is called a sing-off. 2,000 fans versus 2,000 fans. When the song stops, you have to finish that song lyric, all right? So yes, David, you are singing on this, and the song fits what we've been talking about. Are you ready? Sure. All right, here we go. Yeah, I don't know anything after fight song on that one. That's all you're, you're supposed to at least sing the fight song part. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, so literally, I know like a small boat on the ocean, and I know this is my fight song. There's only two lyrics I know from that song. That's the part I stopped at. This is my, and you're supposed to jam fight song, and you're supposed to rock. Dude, I don't even know what note that is, man. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Failed the dare. Sorry. I was going to do this as you have the fight. To no, look, dude, I'm never going to live that down. I'm going to get, I'm going to get walked on stage to that song, et cetera. So I better learn it. But like, look, man, it's Rocky, right? I'm much more eye of the tiger. I've already done eye of the tiger, but I had to fight in the song. I almost did. You have the right fight for your right to party by Beast. Oh, dude, that would have been so much better. <laughs> <laughs> round two, round two. All right. All right. Hey, I want to go a couple of quick, quick, uh, last ones quick. Question time. If you want better answers in business, you got to ask better questions. What's a yeah, totally. Asking right, right now. Um, the biggest question. So I'm a huge fan of Roger Martin, who's a, my, one of my intellectual heroes. And he has a study called integrative thinking, right? Which is basically when you look at two different models, business models, mental models of the world, et cetera, that appear opposed, they're usually not right. So I'm often trying to see that is when I see these things as two opposing forces, how are they not like, how can I get them to work together? Or how can I get them to leverage each other? Cause often they're sort of not right. Like I mean, we're in, I mean, it's an election year here in the United States, for example. We are going to get in this giant polarized debate between conservatives and liberals. In reality, we're not as opposed as we think. We're opposed on our methods, but not on our goals, right? And you see that in a bunch of different areas. So that's probably my big question that I'm trying to ask in a lot of situations is, I think these two things are opposed. How can I get them to not be? Like, how can I get obscurity to actually work for me, mm. right? I haven't figured it out yet. When I do, like, I'll let you know. But those sort of things, you see that hindrance and how can it actually be a benefit? You see that benefit, how is it actually, I'm trying to see when things are opposed, how are they actually integrated? That's probably my biggest question. Well, it's thinking dramatically different. It's a great theme for this show. So, yeah, see? Yeah, thinking so done differently. I'm changing the name of the show. Changing the name of the show. I want to think. So what's something that you've done to dramatically stand out in business or in life? I have in the last probably two years, I mean, so I consider myself a writer first, but most of my income, most of my revenue, et cetera, is on speaking either inside an organization or outside. You know that, you know that world. And so in 2016 was the first time I hired a coach on speaking, right? And so it came out and did my normal thing and he got super mad at me. Like he literally threw a chair at me or kicked a chair. I think he kicked it and then it flew towards me because I don't think he has enough force actually to gent. <laughs> anyway, because he kept saying, dude, here's my biggest problem with you. You get on stage and you try and be smart. And when we get off stage and we go to dinner or whatever, I realize that you are a smart guy I could also have a beer with right? And he goes, you need to be that on stage because we have enough smart people and we have enough comedians, but we don't have smart people that you could go have a beer with. So that's been sort of my mentality. So I'm like, I'm learning about stand up. I'm learning about magic for, I don't actually know if it'll help or not, but I'm like, I'm trying to learn about things that lighten it up, make it a little more entertaining so that I can be that smart guy. That's also funny. The business professor, that's also not boring. Right? So that was my 2016 question. I'm still sort of working on it, getting a little better at it. I, there are still motivational speakers out there that are way funnier. They may not be as smart, but I'm trying to kind of blend that, those two models together. 
Well, it's working, my friend. So I first met you, relatability is huge. So you relate, you're like, all right, he knows what he's talking about, but also he's fun, he can hang, he can chill. And I think that's what we connect with. We want to be able to connect with people in a way that makes them feel like, hey, this is someone I do want to hang out with, but I also can learn from. And uh, yeah, you've done it yeah and I think I learned how to do that in person. It's four years, I'm still learning, getting way better than I was four years ago at doing that from stage or in videos or that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, again, to wrap it all, I mean, this is a serious topic on picking a fight. It's tough to be kind of the relaxed, relatable. It's serious. But you know what? It is so inspiring, so motivating. I've seen what it's happened with the staff. I'm so glad you put the, the book out there. And, and I know it's an audible form. You can download it and listen to it. But um, David, for, from, from my standpoint to your, I appreciate you. I've seen the difference that it's made in the team. And everyone is fired up because of it. So this is something that every company needs to learn from. They need to follow it. They need to put it into play. It's not just talking about purpose. It's actually getting people inspired every day and finding those stories, finding those artifacts and, uh, and really putting it, putting it to work. So thank you for that. And where can, um, where can people find more about you in this? I mean, the single best place, if you're listening to this, and you've listened this long, is the show notes for this episode because you're probably a loyal listener. You're in the end of the podcast club, right? Where you actually listen all the way to the end. So you already know where that is. Like double tap the cover art, whatever. You already know how to do that. So that's probably the best place. DavidBurgess.com is my website, but that's a really weird last name. I don't expect you to remember it. So just check out Jesse's thing. I'm sure he'll link to it. You'll see this and you'll find me. Or type it into Google and let Google autocorrect my name and then you'll find me too. <laughs> David, I appreciate you, my friend. Man, thank you so much for having me and for modeling what a good fight looks like. Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.